Hello and welcome again to Northwest Five podcast, uh, where we talk to tech and business leaders in the Northwest about everything to do with, well, tech and business, I guess. And um, I have my my co-host today, Zach Georgius. Hello, Zach. Hi, guys. How's everyone doing? How are you doing today? Don't answer that honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Usual chaotic life, as ever. Yes. Yeah. For the purpose of the podcast, everything's fine at home with Zach and there's no problems with power washers. (laughs) Okay, and uh, today we also have a guest on, Daniel Graham. Hello, Dan. How are you doing? I'm great, John. Thanks. Hey, thanks for coming on. Um, do you want to just start off? Tell us uh, what you do and who you are. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm, well, I'm Dan Graham. I'm the CTO of Car Finance 24/7. We're kind of the UK's largest like internet-based car finance broker. That's what I do. I run the sort of technology department, which includes our own software. IT and various other bits. Brilliant, thank you. And I love talking to CTOs because I've always got like a million questions. Um, I'm sure Zach will have too. So we'll um, we'll be firing them thick and fast at you. So did we start off maybe with the business? Is that all right? So do you want to tell us like how the business started and when did you get involved? So I think the business is about 10 years old. Um, I think it started with there's two, two brothers, Reg and Louis Ricks, who are kind of driving force. They've got a family history in uh, motor sales. So I think um, there's a Reg Ricks Sr. Owns, owns a big car showroom in Warrington. They, they kind of worked in the early days of the internet, building a kind of car database, so like a vehicle search database, that type of approach. So it's, like, it's a bit like a competitor, if you like, to auto trade. It's classified like an early one of those. Uh, and I think that was eventually bought by the RAC, I believe. Um, so they spent a while at the RAC. And as as that kind of phase of life came to an end, they, they kind of almost turned the car buying journey on its head so you know traditionally you'll go into a car showroom find your car and then you'll if you want to buy it on finance the people in the showroom will have a finance option for you and you all will often have take just take that finance option because you don't really think about it any other way and they've kind of turned that around as basically well you can get your car finance approved first and then you can go anywhere you want so you're you're in charge you know what your budget is you know what your monthly payment's going to be before you even go anywhere and then you match up that finance to the to the car, and you know you're, you're in the driving seat, so to speak. And I'm sure they've used most of those phrases in marketing over the last ten years. I think the one the one that they kind of stick with is get your car finance first, um, and it, it does kind of put you in the driving seat. So you're not at the mercy of what the dealer is going to offer. And to an extent, that's changed a lot in the last couple of years, anyway, with regulations about not allowing to skew deals in favour of commission and so on. So, you know, a lot of this is it's becoming more efficient as a market anyway. But yeah, they, they've, they've been sort of right at the front of this for a while. There's a lot of copycat companies. We kind of clone everything from our entire look and feel of website to um, the, the kind of form. You know, we see we say we change something on our application form and the company will change the same field and the same descriptive text a couple of weeks later when their teams catch up with us. So we're, we're kind of at the front, essentially the biggest. Uh, and and our, our job really is to try and like do, do the best we can for our customers, sort of finding them the best. We've got the biggest panel of lenders, so we, we try and do this as, as well as we can. Amazing. Yeah, I was literally going to ask you about the commission question because that was my limited experience of these kinds of things where the commission would be how they, you know, they lower the price of the car in favour of you going with a particular finance deal. And you're saying that's been tight. But you're not up. supposed to do that anymore. Yeah, we, we clearly don't do that because we don't have any cars. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, hence like that, that kind of independence. So it's easy for us to do that. We, we just, you know, we, we facilitate the best rate that our panel of lenders will accept. So basically you apply, 
we'll try you across 12, 13 different lenders and they will give, and then we ultimately go with the best rate that we can find for that customer. And we have to do that. And that's, that's, you know, and if, we, if there's any possible reason why we're not doing that, and there are lots of reasons actually, if you, um, we'll maybe come on to it later, but it's actually quite a complicated set of rules. You know, some lenders won't allow you to buy, I don't know, a golf GTI. They don't want to lend money on those. Uh, so, we, you know, you may have X percent APR as your best rate, but X plus one if you want to buy a golf GTI because another lender will let you have that. And it's that that complexity that we try and unravel for our customers and guide them through. And we get it right nearly all the time. When it goes wrong, it's a bit of a pain because you've got to get back to the customer and say, no, the lender won't let you have that or you can have that, but now you've got to put a deposit down. But we don't often fall foul of that. Um, we're, we're pretty good at sort of keeping on top of all the rules across all the different lenders. That is our that is basically our system. They're all in-house systems that do all of that. Cool. So, I mean, obviously it's great products. Obviously it's a product of, of, of the, the current age, isn't it? Where sort of everyone's sort of moving in this direction. I mean, I don't know exactly how long you've been there at Car Finance. A couple of years now, just under? Yeah, so I've been there just over two years now, yeah. Right, okay. And um, obviously, from your perspective, being the market leader, I guess in your job, it's all about staying ahead. So what sort of challenges does that bring for you? Do you have to move with the tech? Is it more about the competitors? Are you having to continually overhaul the tech, et cetera? Do you know what I mean? We've moved from a couple of years ago, we never even had heard, maybe four years ago, we never even heard of data scientists. Now that's all we hear, don't sure. we? So Absolutely, yeah. So, so yeah, it's an interesting one. And I don't know, I've done this for many years across different industries now. When you, when you, when you arrive in a new place, you've got to kind of acquire some domain knowledge and work out what it is that they're doing. And while the tech is the tech, you know, it, it's pretty straightforward. You know, we've got databases and we've got some software that talks to databases and shows people forms on the web. That's that's tech, isn't it? For, for me, it's not about the tech. It's about reaching through the business requirements back up to understanding the domain and sort of saying, ah, I can see what you've done here. You've kind of encapsulated your own business processes in tech. Um, and I, I sort of... I've, I've done this so many times now. You, ar- you arrive and look at people and they've built, you might have seen software like this yourself. You have like an in-tray and an out-tray. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen things with like virtual rubber stamps on an application. You need like a paid or a on-hold stamp and it comes. And really what you're doing there is you're like, people have literally digitized paper processes. And, you know, the grand vision of all oh, we'll digitized at all, it'll be amazing technology. He's actually, yeah, you just build paper but, you know, on computers. You know, you've got forms and you've built a form and then people have checkboxes for forms and rubber stamps. And, and actually, you're not building any efficient processes. So, like, I've almost sort of made a career out of this in the last 15 years. I'm kind of trying to work back up and go, what are you actually trying to do here? Oh, right, that would be far better if it was done like this. Um, and so that that's kind of the challenge here is to sort of try and unpick the operational processes in a 500-person operation and, and try and say, well, you know, how can we be more efficient with technology rather than simply continue to sort of match the technology to the organizational structure? Has, has anyone heard of Conway's Law? Um, yes. Where, you know, I guess an organization is kind of doomed to develop processes that map onto the organizational structure. Um that, that I think that was about 1967, I think it was. And that's that's kind of what I find everywhere I go. And my kind of mission is to kind of say, no, we don't really need to do that. We can do things better. We can, uh, a really simple example, we can allocate leads better. We don't have to have teams and a team-based allocation structure just because in the sales and operations area, we have teams. So we can route things more smartly to the right people at the right time. We can work out what shifts are available 
how people are like, you know, are, are they busy? Are they not busy? And do, do smarter things like that. And yes, yeah, some of it's data science. So, you know, we've got, we do use data science at key points in the customer journey. So, um, ultimately, we, we have to work out what sort of customer this is, that this is applied. We're, we're a full spectrum lending broker. So you can get anything from a really good APR rate up to really, really high rates where people, um, you know, are, are in bad credit but desperately need a car, and we'll try and help them through that journey. But it's it's finding the right place to go to at the right time. Uh, so yeah, we, we've we've got some data science, we've got some great data science models. We've got a lot of automation behind the scenes. We use lots of sort of online services and credit reference data to try and make the best possible decisions that we can make. But then we've still got to talk to all the other lenders and build all those rules in and try and basically complete what I've described as kind of the love triangle between the lender, the, the dealer, if you like, and the customer and get that all sort of singing nicely. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot to it. It's a big challenge, but it's, I'm not sure about probably drifted slightly, but yeah, there's the the tech is really one of understanding the domain and kind of pulling it apart and put it back together again. Not not the tech itself. There'll still be databases. There'll still be some C sharp. You know, we're still writing software, but what software are we writing? Are we just writing software to manage teams? Are we writing software to get the right sort of customer to the right position in their journey to serve them better? Yeah, I think it's interesting what you're saying there about this, you know, rethinking the operational, the process. Um, I wouldn't have, I suppose, naturally assumed that that was the role of the of a CTO. That might be more like a, an operational change or, or something else. But clearly, if you're a CTO that's worked in more than one business, you can you can step back and see what the abstract problem is. Um, and either work with the CEO, COO, or whoever to say, hey, I've seen this problem before. You've done it like this. We've done it like this over here or something like it. That's why you've got, that's why you're using digital rubber stamps. Is that the, is that the role of a good CTO to like work across the, the C-suite and, and I, I would think so, it? yeah, because they, you could be lots of different types. There are lots of different types of CTOs. You know, if you're the CTO of a bank, you're really dealing with like procurement and service providers and what systems are going where and you know where you're getting your next document management system from you know you're not you're not sitting there at the code level working on like exactly what's going on you're looking at the, possibly the territory level or the department level at, at most uh, car finance were quite lost we're sort of 500 people strong as a management team as a c-suite we meet every week and we're very close the, the two ceos are very close to the business the coo um, sales, sales and operations people are very, very close. They're sat around now, so we, you know, we're we're very close to the business, and I'm I'm a part of that team that is close to the business. You know, I look at the data, I look at the figures, I look at the finance, and I look at the operations stuff, and I see it as my job to sort of make the right, like map the right technology choices onto improving the operation, not just sit here wait for tech requirement. So I'm sort of more proactive like that. I'm also really techy as well, so I can map that into like software architecture. And, actual technology choice so um obviously i want to find out more about car finance 24 7 what's exciting what's going on there you know all the stuff um but i also want to find a little bit more about you dan and uh what your background where you come from i know um you've worked at several different businesses you've done this in a couple of different places but you've predominantly been in the manchester area as well you know what sort of what just tell us a little bit more about your journey how you got into it what changes you've seen over the past few years have you seen many changes is manchester becoming this tech hub that they say it's becoming or is it just becoming more challenging uh 
Well, tackling your last question first, I think, yeah, I think, yes, Manchester is getting a kind of critical mass. I mean, it wasn't long ago we were talking about the Northwest Corridor, you know, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester, but I don't know. I, I, I feel that that is actually consolidating in, in Manchester. The explosion is incredible. Uh, you'll know from your side of the fence that recruitment is going through the roof. People, you know, it's increasingly hard to find the right people. It's hard to train and retain the right people. Not simply, but, you know, they can. I've, I've had developers perfectly happy leave because the, the someone bangled a huge carrot. I just simply can't justify. I was just about to say, wage inflation's going through the roof as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But but there's 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 one thing, sir. I don't think this is going to go away. You know, the the it, it's becoming a huge sort of tech hub in Manchester. FinTech's a big part of it, but there's lots of other high tech stuff that's gone on here. We've got world-class universities in the northwest you know manchester itself part of the russell group and you know there's some great research that goes on here lots of amazing things happen in manchester you know we, we split the atom all that sort of stuff and i think that sort of the days of london being the entire focus are on are kind of gone now there's definitely a sort of second zone um, and I suppose that maps a little bit more into my journey if, if you like at a certain point in time so I, I did my sort of first degree in london um, and it's and it's funny you say that you know I've, I've kind of worked in and around Manchester. Yes, I have because I, after three years in London, I didn't want to live there anymore. And you know, it, it wasn't for me. I'm a sort of proud and happy Northerner, and I didn't enjoy living in London, even as a student, where you're supposed to have the best days of your life. You know, it's like you know the, the London aspect of the best days of my life wasn't wasn't the best part. And so, yeah, it's not it's not for everyone. But not, but now you know I've, I've got people who I've recently hired. Uh, in, who live in Aberdeen and Cumbria and places like that because we're all fully remote now so I don't actually care that I'm in Manchester anymore it's great I could get a job in London if I wanted to and work for a London firm but actually I like the northwest I like Manchester yeah. so yeah I'm, I'm happy and proud that we're in um, that we're here it's, it's a great place to be and it's a very exciting time cool and how did you get yourself on the you know the the journey how did you become a, a cto you know i know you've worked at a few different places and you've obviously worked your way up but did you ever want to be a cto you know or did you just move through the gears so yeah i, I suppose it's a funny one really i think if i go back as, as a youth look you know 12 year old boy i got uh a, my first computer was a zx spectrum and I, I got into programming really quickly. You could program on it out of the box. You know, it started on a command prompt and away you went. And whilst gaming was good, I, I kind of liked programming more. And I got quite into it. I mean, it was just like a geeky hobby that, you know, you keep to yourself because it doesn't make you very popular. Um, but, I, you know, I learned how to do machine code in the semi language. And then I got my next computer, which was a bit of a better one. And I carried on doing that. So I got quite good at technology quite quickly. You know, your brain's a sponge when you're that age, and it just seems to seem to work quite well. I was doing databases for my brother's sales company when I was sort of 16. I did 3D graphics of quantum mechanical simulations for my degree when other people were doing console programs. If that, I just sort of really liked it. So, and then I did a year in like network protocol analysis for the National Computer Centre on Oxford Road, which I think is still there. Uh, and then I did a master's in computation, then I did a PhD in face recognition. So I kind of have done like high tech computer based things for quite some time. You know, and while I was doing that, the internet was booming. I had a friend at uh, CERN doing his PhD when Tim Berners Lee was there. And he was showing me how like you know how scientific information was being shared. When I was doing my PhD, all the people in that 
field was sharing their research on their company web on their sort of university website. I wrote and maintained our websites and our research group and for other research groups at, at the university. So, so I, I kind of did all this on the it's like almost side of desk whilst I was doing education and uh, and you know it, it, it's quite powerful having that sort of level of depth of knowledge as it's being developed. So I wasn't aiming to be a CTO, but I kind of I, I'm like technically qualified. I'm not technically, I'm not qualified to be a kind of management level CTO or a procurement based CTO or, you know, I, I, I couldn't be the CTO of a bank. I, I'd have to be this level at a company that's like tech and has its own tech and is, is on a mission to do something. I think that's the sort of CTO that I am. And I think that's right for this company and, and right for where I, where I am in, in my life. But yeah, I still, I still do this. I still program and I still, um, I still have like three IDEs on my desktop, I do a bit of JavaScript and I'll do a bit of system config and I'll do a few other bits and pieces. So yeah, I, I, I'm never letting that go. Do you know, it's it's fascinating, honestly. We do these podcasts and we speak to everybody. And the one thing I wanted to sort of bring up with you there, John, was it's so interesting where Dan sort of mentions about this young age thing again. Because I assure you, in my job, no one at a young age wanted to become a recruiter. You know, <laughs> you just became a recruiter, just the way it is. Whereas it's quite fascinating to, to sort of, have these chats with people like Dan and other people that we've spoken to before who've mentioned Spectrum Spectrum as well, haven't they? And how they got into computing at a young age. And now, actually, you know, 20 years plus on, they actually realised that that fascination, which actually was not nowhere near, most people didn't even know what IT was 20 years ago, to where we are today. So it just shows that in your industry rather than in our industry and don't get me wrong i mean i love what i do i've been doing it for a very very long time but in your industry it actually becomes the love for what you do which actually then becomes the positions that you then create which i think we've discussed with a few people haven't we john yeah and i I was listening with interest to your story because you started with a zx spectrum around the same time i started i thought oh yeah this is going to parallel and then you went into machine code i'm like okay our paths obviously split at 13 when you started (laughs) doing machine code and i was still on the spectrum so well done you that's probably why i'm not a cto um (laughs) you you need you needed you needed to machine code to program the graphics and the sound to, yeah, to, to the right level. You couldn't do funky special effects without machine code. Exactly, and that, yeah, exactly. So that's where my 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 interest was there, but ability probably not. Uh, and it was hard to get books. I'll blame that on. on it was very difficult. I was very lucky at finding a uh, the the complete set of operational codes in the library in in, uh, in Digibri Library. God knows why they had it, but it was that the full the full Z80 chipset instruction manual, and that's kind of what you needed. Yeah, I think I think you did need that, but you definitely need the interest and the passion, which I think Zach's talking about. And I do, and I, you know, this is interesting because I I used to think ex- exactly that that you, in order to be that you know really good at, in development or as technically, you had to start really young. Like I used to joke that I left it too late because I didn't start till I was ten, and but I, I don't think that's true because I've met people who've started later in life and are brilliant like uh, you know there's people I, I work with who came through that you know they did a degree in a Russell group but in a different subject a hard science but a different subject um and then you know realized that oh they're quite like coding and sort of cracked on and did a bit and they're just brilliant and I think if you're passionate enough you can make up ground because you're not you know you're still not working on that on that chip so essentially you're you, how much of that how much of that compounded over the years 
or you know you're because you had to relearn multiple programming languages over that time so yeah absolutely yeah yeah, I, yeah it comes down to the passion and, and i think sometimes it's ease i don't yes those early years help they provide like a really really good foundation but you don't need to know how to program in z80 assembly language just to to write a website you know you can do perfectly well with css react or whatever pick up one framework and get going you know you you, you don't need to be uh, an assembly you don't need to be a network engineer I think that the thing that I like, uh, the thing about me that I like is I, I kind of know how networks work, I know how machines work, I know how databases work. I kind of, you know, I've written them to a certain extent. You know, I've written HTTP servers because you had to um, to do like video streaming and so on. So you, you learn a huge amount by doing that. And I've had the fortune, if you like, to work in companies where they were the requirements that the company was set up to do so you know i worked in a video streaming company before we had 3g so we had our own custom video codecs and we had to write our own web server to stream that live and client and mobile apps and devices before ios and android was even out old nokias and so on so you had to do an enormous amount of work there just to actually make the thing work together it's so easy to do that now you know you can, anyone can do this but that's fine because a lot of what we actually need to do on a daily basis is write normal software and a choice of any available, very capable programming languages, talking to databases, writing web pages. There's loads of great frameworks to do all that now. So you don't have to think about like optimizing your CSS and all, and you know, optimizing your layout. Browsers are incredibly fast now. They used to be awful. You start a program for IE6 and Chrome and Firefox and you know, God knows what else. And you used to have to litter your code with all of that stuff, but that was the job then. Now you don't have to do that. That's kind of all solved. There are standards and we're all good. So the world's changed. The requirements have changed. You know, when was the last time you hired someone who was an expert in writing protocol stacks for some odd obscure computer? You don't do that anymore, do you? It's all standardized. Yeah. So so the world's changed and the requirements have changed. But understanding how it all works, that hasn't changed. It still works like that, just because I don't have to do that. I don't have to hire someone who knows about TCP IP and therefore to make an efficient HTTP call because he's writing a web service. It doesn't matter. He doesn't need to know that. That's not, or she doesn't need to know that. I'm being uh, implicitly sexist there. I wasn't trying to. Um, and so it's quite, it, it's important to me. But would, would I start and do all that again if I was doing that? And of course I wouldn't. I wouldn't be sitting there reading, doctor, reading Dr. Dobbs and PC Pro and PC whatever magazines I used to read to try and keep like, on top of all this stuff. But, you know, that's that's not the world we live in now, is it? No, but there's layers of abstraction, aren't there? I mean, obviously, that's the whole point. They've, those things have been abstracted away, but then new, harder, new hard problems come along. So uh, you, you said picking the framework. I mean, that's actually a hard problem. Like, you know, it's something that you have to do, presumably, a front-end framework. People argue about them for weeks. And, yeah, and, you know, and that's, but I, you know, that's a bit of a joke. But at the same time, there are other new hard problems that, you know, uh, we we had someone on the, uh, recently, and they were they were they had um, they had to optimize their gaming platform to work on all these different devices, and that was like super hard because you have to make it visually fit onto every Android screen, and there's hundreds of different screen sizes, and you have to try it out, and you know you can't. We you know we sort of lazily make assumptions in the development world that everyone's on Chrome on a big screen, and they're not, and stuff breaks, um, so we have to. You know, but that organization had to sit down and test it on 100 different devices. Otherwise, they lost customers. So there are new problems that are 
different and weird and hard. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's it. I mean, it's quite it's quite strange, isn't it? I remember the the world we were sold in the eighties that computers were going to take away everyone's jobs, um, make everything really easy, and automate everyone out of existence. And it, actually, it's just created a whole new raft of problems. You know, that, that that's a great example. You know, I've now got a program for a hundred different devices when I used to only have to worry about three desktop screen sizes, one thousand twenty-four by seven sixty-eight pixels. And to be fair, that'll do. If it was a bit big or a bit small, it wasn't really my problem. But now you've got to do this. And, you know, mobiles are incredibly challenging because you've, you've not only got to just, you're not going to make it work across all those devices. It's got to actually work in small format. And a lot of business systems are not written for small format. They're like big paper forms on the screen. Uh, and a lot of where I work is if you like, in the enterprise, not in the, at, the, at the front end consumer end. Well, I've done I've done both, but they're different challenges, and and so all there's always new challenges. There's always new stuff to do. There's always the operational challenges of the business. So you know, what is the business? What are the people doing in our business that, that our software can help them? And you know, these, these problems will never go away. I I, I I I don't joke about this. I don't think I'll ever be out of a job because I think these problems are eternal. Yeah. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the team then, because we were talking about challenges, and I think a lot of businesses are facing challenges with hiring people and you know culture, like you know maintaining the culture we had pre-pandemic. You said that you're all remote now, but I can see you're in an office and people walking by. So uh, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> okay. So what's so my, my, in some ways my team, the, the people yeah. I collaborate with, are, are the, as we had it from like the other C-suite type people. So. I have to be in the office to deal with those people and and work out what their requirements are. I'm part of that team. I'm part of the, the whole you know, the meta requirements function of working out what it is we're doing. Um, so that that's important for me to be in and to work with these people and to feel on the ground what what is going on in our operations that that is underpinned by our technology. You know, I use sit in our systems day in day out. Some of my team members pop in now and again. Um, some of them like two three days in the office just as a break from scenery. Uh, and they're all welcome. We've got plenty of desks left, so so that's fine. But but the team itself is 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 quite interesting. So I think our challenges really are. So we we've we've got quite a nice culture. We we're pretty friendly. I'm quite close to them all. I'm on every team stand up every day. Uh, sometimes just joining the dots between the sort of different functions, but just just to keep in touch and be sort of present. You know, um, we've got about four or five teams across different sort of domains in the business like data uh, there's a lending team there's a sort of internal crm team a public facing customer team we've got the it team um and uh, a team that looks after all the kind of vehicles and billing type sort of functions as well so we've we've got quite a few teams in the business they're all vaguely connected because they work on the same infrastructure and platform so so that's that's quite nice. We have lots of touch points. We have a big sort of technology pulse, which I do on Friday afternoon, which is a nice wind down. It's been known that some people might open a beer at sort of half four. You never know. Um, it's a bit, it's a bit strange doing it by uh, Teams or Zoom, but you know that's that that's kind of where we are with a fully remote people. We've got we've got people who you know I speak to once or twice a week who don't ever come into the office, and I've only ever only ever seen when they came in to pick their laptop up but they you know they're, they're fully part of the team we're all pretty close the, the stand-ups we do we sort of cameras on every morning so we, we kind of we keep in touch uh, i do try and organize the odd night out still now we can that's that's been good 
but the culture really for me is, is the, the important part of the culture is I've, I've tried to turn this tech team that are, like inherited and have grown and sort of changed over, over time into one that feels that it owns its own platform and, and can kind of self-motivate themselves to change. So, you know, they, they, they make their choices and we rationalise about them, but, but they're in charge of how they do things. And, if, you know, they tell me, no, I, I can't really do this anymore. I've got to go and do this. It's fine. I, and I think I've got enough of their respect and enough tech understanding so that I don't get flanneled by that. It's not like, oh, we must rewrite all the front end in React. You know, that's that. It's not that sort of conversation. It's like this is getting this is getting messy and horrible now. I can't um, I can't keep making changes here. It's going to cause business risk. I need to spend a week taking it apart, putting it back together again. I really would like to get this this microservice off. You know, whatever .NET Core version it's currently on. I've got to upgrade it. It's causing us problems. Um, it'd be a good time to move it into our you know fledgling or you know actually slowly growing Azure footprint. Because uh, we've got like lo- lots of programs running, so we've got some tech programs running. We've got modernization programs. We've got the tech stack. We've got strangely old tech stack. We've got remove whole swathes of functionality from the tech stack that we've found a far better service provider offering that we can integrate with. So we've got all sorts of strategies going on, and I think that in itself, the sort of tech mission and the fact that I'm technically there with the team, you know, doing the odd PR here and there, doing doing you know bits of code advising them how I would go about it, given that I've architected quite a bit of the new elements of the system. I think that, I think that helps. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's sort of difficult to maintain full active developer role. In fact, the last couple of months, I've done very, very little. But I'm still close enough to, to be with them on their journey and help. And I think that's kind of the culture, really. It's kind of happy tech culture, not a do this, do this, do this, or, you know, and... and I think one of the things is I'm challenging requirements and bringing requirements in that make sense technically. The flip side of what I try and do in the business is that when we do make changes, they land in the tech team in a sympathetic way, not a rip all that up and do this. So it kind of works both ways. I could use the word holistic, but that would sound like I was really thinking about it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's that. I think yeah. that keeps, I'm trying to keep a happy tech team by giving them a happy tech environment to work in. Um, we all know what it's like. You, you'll know in the industry that people people can move, they can leave, they can go and find new jobs, they can find remote jobs. But for me, it, it's having a clear mission for them all and, and letting them feel empowered that they can influence that mission and they know I've got their back as well, so I won't let them be pulled around by crazy business requirements. Yeah, so that sounds great. So you're giving them like the autonomy to run the team the way they, the, you know, the, run their platform the way they want. You know, obviously, within reason, stuff has to be, Watch makes it. sense um and you know it's like fulfilling rewarding work and it sounds like as a tech leader you're you know technical enough to be to, to not make bad choices if that makes sense like we there there some tech leaders are accused of not being technical enough and then getting in there and you know just pull in a china shop kind of problem where they go oh yeah you know use the react example again hey i've seen this hot blog about react so I want you, I want you to all do it. And like, well, the tech, t- the team would tell you that's garbage and here's why or yeah. not. I mean, I, I, without, without sort of naming any names, there was a, there was a person who was invited into this business before I started and had left. 
who told told our tech team who were pretty much all C-sharp programmers or, or .NET Core as it's sort of, and told them they should rewrite everything in Java and move it to Google's cloud. Um, you can imagine how that would go down. So yeah. anyone who would say something like that to that set of people, that, I mean, that, that is literally building a China shop. Yeah. It's like the cardinal sin, isn't it? Yeah, so lack of understanding of those people and their drivers and the investment they've put into that skill set over a decade in some cases or more. Um, exactly, yeah. And, and also, and also technically, just technically it's insane, isn't it? The yeah. business domain knowledge that's encapsulated in this 10 year sort of long code base, you're basically saying throw it all away. It's just, yeah, it's kind of ludicrous, but you can imagine the impact and how well that one went down. So I want to ask one other question then. So you talked about, you know, which I say the positive side of being technical and involved with the teams on a on a hands-on, occasional hands-on basis. Do you think there's a downside to that? Do you think the team ever go, why is he meddling in the code again? Do we have <laughs> I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. I do I joke about it myself. Um, and I'll take the odd Jira ticket and, and work on them and now I might have to bump it from one sprint to the next because I didn't get time to do it. Um but yeah, there, there, there is the odd downside. But you know, on the flip side of that is I'm not terrible. I'm not yeah. completely rusty. We're not doing. We're not. We're not sending people to the moon here. Um, yeah. And and always like really good engineering principles and like you know being vaguely defensive about your changes, having good architecture and you know tests that helps. But yeah, I don't. I I, I think there's a reason why I haven't done anything for a month. Is that I've been in lots of meetings and you can't fire up your IDE for 20 minutes. You know you need a good run at something to do it. Uh, but there are parts of the system that we've migrated off off, if you like, software platforms that we've written. Uh, for instance, our, our telephony system is uh, built in a system called Twilio, uh, which we've been customers for a while, but we were customers using their SDK services, so we did everything in code. We've now, we've now flip, flipped into Twilio Flex, and we don't do it in code. They've got a drag-and-drop configurable editor for where your calls go and what your routing looks like and all that sort of stuff. And, and our, our approach to that has architected it so that we can make changes there, so we can change opening hours. We can change things a lot more simply with a lot less risk. Uh, and, you know, that's retired 15 microservices that we don't need anymore. So, wow. so there's great things like that that I can still help with because I'm good at dragging and dropping. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm sure, I'm sure you're good at lots of other things on top. So, so do you think you stay hands-on then because, well, why? I mean... Why do you do it? Why do you think you stay stuck? Why? 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 Well, well, well there's there's a couple of things. One, I like it. You know, this has been my hobby since I was twelve. Why should I stop just because I've kind of got a C at the front of my title? Um, the other thing is, it's it's if if I'm there and thereabouts, then I I can I can have the back of the team. I know what challenges they're facing. I can look at the code base and go, oh my god, we've got to change this, or actually that's not a problem. Yeah, we'll do that for you. So an urgent requirement comes up and we want to interrupt the sprint. I, I know I can have a conversation at, if you like, my level and say, that's easy. I know we can do that change. I know we can do that change in an hour. I know we've got test suites around that part of the code base. I'm comfortable. Whereas if you say, I want to do this, I want to change the whole way this part of the system works. I'm like, no, 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 no. We, know we don't like touching that part. It's, it's yeah. fragile and flaky and we don't want to, that's not, this is not the right time. What about if we did this? And I think that that helps again. It's that round trip, you know. It's not, you know, I could take a requirement from the CEO, walk up to the relevant team, and go, "Please do this." You know, be like man in the middle, passing requirements down. But I don't. I can have a rational conversation 
with my team about this and I can rational conversation with my colleagues at sea level to say why we should or shouldn't do this. And now is not the time for us to be redoing that part because in six months' time it will be on a completely new platform. So I don't really want to waste the effort there. And and that I think is where the real value comes in. I was just about to say that I think that for, for, for me, obviously, my experience of what you guys do and stuff like that is is that it's that that balance between the two things: the commercial-minded CTO who knows when to say that this is going to happen and can deal at C-suite level. That's why you're able to sit there because you're able to sit in that room in that meeting and say, "Look, I know you want us to be over here yesterday." But actually, that's not the right time for us to do this. And we need to do it in this methodical way. And then equally at the same time, you know, you're empowering your team, aren't you? You're empowering your team at the same time, but you understand it as well. So, you know, that completely makes sense to me as to, you know, why you are in the position that you're in. And I think sometimes, you know, we've had this conversation before, sometimes you tend to find that some techies are just techie and they don't do the other part, the commercial. And then there's other people that do have that balance of being able to look at it from two different angles. And, you know, clearly that's why what you do. Is yeah, it's just one of those things. And I think in some ways I've kind of fallen into the, the more commercial operational mindset over years, really. I think, you know, yeah, I, I started out really techie. And then you realize, actually, I'm quite good at thinking what the products might be because yeah. the tech kind of can underpin the product. And then you think, well, actually, this product's pointless. No one wants this product. Oh, it's a lovely looking product, but no one actually wants to consume it. Uh, or worse, they want to consume it, but they only want to consume it five hours a week or one hour a week or one hour every fortnight. And then you need four million people who are doing that. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't work. Whereas, you know, we people apply for car finance bringing it to this relevant example all day every day even christmas day people are applying on our website for car finance and, and it never stops it doesn't stop overnight it doesn't stop during the day you know it, it's it literally is constant but nice and steady which is great so i don't have to worry about elastic scalability of my cloud bill being huge one minute down the next because actually i can just keep it steady basically so i want another question for you down then about because uh, I'm quite curious about the, how you're saying, you know, technical and even if you're not going to always be hands on, you, you know enough to to understand the impact. So you've got that empathy for the team. So when some, as you were saying, something comes down from the CEO. Do you think that could scale? Like if you if, you know, car finance had to scale to double the size, you'd still be able to have enough technical knowledge to maintain that. Do you think that? That, that knowledge comes from just a general technical understanding or do you think it's because you worked on some of the products i think yeah i think the, the knowledge applies regardless I, I kind of you know unless we started writing this software in fortran or something like that i find hard to read i mean they're all curly brackets languages aren't they javascript java c sharp they all look and feel the same there's no you know apart from the the sugar and the weird nonsense of syntax that all languages make you sort of do the bit that does the business logic is is the business logic and anyone can kind of understand that and you can understand how complex it's become um so so i find it i find myself able to scale across the domains because i can read the code quite quickly and i understand what it's doing and where it's going and i sit on top of all the metrics and channels and, and so on um so I, I think yeah i could scale to twice the size of the team if i needed to uh, but what, what I sort of found is that a lot of companies will scale their team 
you know, I've, I've got twice the developers, I'll write software twice as fast. And what you tend to do is you don't write software twice as fast because you saturate your team with learning new styles who don't know what they're doing. And also it's rare that you need to increase velocity times two. You probably actually want to be clever about what you write in the first place. Um, or you want to take time to re-architect and re-change your direction, or even better, the best piece of work that I can do is turn around to the exec people and go, that's a stupid idea, let's not do that. And then no one, no one writes any code, do we? We just wasted half an hour of a conversation at some kind of you know meeting that hasn't affected the people on the ground doing the work. And I told them it's a stupid idea, we're not doing it, and how about to build you a report off the data at the back and then we don't have to worry about it and they'll go oh yeah that's a good idea and then no one's done any work um so that in itself is a massive increase in velocity as is not allowing your team to be interrupted all the time and allowing them to focus on the job at hand so we can deliver big pieces of complex work on time and efficiently and i don't need five times as many people or three times as many people to do that so there's a balance really i think and there's a sort of team rule you know five or six people per team that's quite right that's very manageable i've got about five or six people that i manage and that's very manageable as well and they're kind of the ones i interact with but i do keep myself on top of the code and look at prs and i'll approve some prs and i'll question some um to various degrees in different areas uh, we've also got we're getting a bit techy and uh, probably relevant podcast you know we've got a project that's running on a on a low-code platform at the moment as well so that's that's been very successful we've spun up a whole kind of new business unit not written a whole software stack we've just gone with an out of the box effectively drag and drop low code sort of platform it's very straightforward form based list views that sort of stuff we were up and running in about 12 12 weeks from nothing there uh, and live and you know we've got like hundreds of dealers around the country using this service now and they quite like it so we've got there are lots of things you can do by picking the right technology which means you don't have to just get more bodies on the ground and i think one of the symptoms of that approach is you've gone react and suddenly you need 10 more react developers because actually it's quite complex and really your website isn't you know you're not facebook you haven't got a team of people looking after the like button but if you pick React, suddenly everything's a component. It's got its own life cycle, so you've got loads of code, and it's hard to understand the domain, and it takes developers longer to get going. And was it the right framework? Would we better something a bit simpler, or a bit more sort of assisting you in the development life cycle? So those dev choices are really important. And if you let devs pick them because you know they want React on the CV, you can end up needing more devs. Absolutely, Zach, you're going to come in. I was going to say, it's a real shame we've come to an end. Uh, I could talk to you for hours, to be honest with you. So I think next time you go out for a pint with John, I'll be coming as well. Um, Sounds good. I don't think think you're too far away, are you? (laughs) No, not at all. So I think, you know, to to finish off, um, and also before we do, I want to thank you because it's been really fascinating, really fascinating listening to you um, explain how you do things there and, and what your thoughts are generally. But if there was one piece of advice you could give to somebody coming into tech now, um, what would that be? One piece of advice. Uh, I think it's difficult, really, because tech is tech's wide. You know, what, what would I say to someone who wanted to get into front-end development versus what would I say to someone who wanted to be back-end development or database development or in IT infrastructure and project management? It's, it's all different. But the thing, the thing I think I'd say is, Keep learning how it works. Don't just learn how to make it work. You know, don't just learn 
like, you know, don't just learn React and then, oh, right, I'm a good React developer now. Learn how React works. Look at React's source code. Like, why, why was it built like that? What problem does React solve rather than I'm a React developer? Just take the time to understand why it works. Because when the next thing comes along in a couple of years' time, you'll be a React programmer. And if you know how React works, you'll know why this new framework's came along and why it's advantageous. And as you mature through your career, you'll be able to make better choices about technology as opposed to just jumping technology. And I think that's the thing I'd, I'd like more techies because I have a kind of latent concern that in 15 years' time, no one will be writing machine language anymore. And no one will know how to write network drivers. And, you know, like the, I think a good example is Intel used to take PhD graduates. And in a year, they'd be productive designing new parts of Intel's chips. Intel now take PhD students and it takes them six years to get them up to speed with the latest in the industry before they can be productive for Intel. And I worry that we could end up in that world, in the software world, where no one knows how to actually fundamentally architect and write software anymore. I worry that everyone's running into the cloud for absolutely no reason because you could run the entire business on a server in the corner. And, you know, and they've got microservices and sidecar loaded, all sorts of things simply because they can't conceive of any other way to do it or they think that's what they should be doing and it's really not necessarily the right answer and i think if you understand how the stuff works even just one step down you know you don't have to know how your browser works you don't have to know how the javascript engine optimizes the code but if you knew one step down you just have a little bit more insight and that's the thing i would encourage people to do and it's great if you're just trying to get in the industry and you've just done a boot camp and you're converted from something absolutely fine get going but don't stop there don't stop your learning just just do that a little bit more absolutely amazing i mean it's been it is it's been fascinating i'm sure john john say it's been fascinating speaking to you dan and and uh we really appreciate your time um john i don't know if yeah, you've got i do yeah I, I was gonna say the same it's been absolutely brilliant we've done we talked loads of really sensible useful stuff that uh, would be very helpful to anyone else in a CTO or other senior leadership position. We definitely mentioned the most different technical products on this than any other podcast. More programming languages names were dropped. Um, Fortran. And, more, and, and Fortran and every name, a lot of computers. And that's saying something because we've had Adil on this, uh, Adil Ijaz on this show and uh, he's known to be a little bit technical from time to time. So brilliant, Dan. Thank you so much for that. I definitely got something out of it. I know our listeners will too. Um, so, with, so with that, we'll finish up. Thank you very much for um, joining Northwest by Podcast again. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, we now have a website. It's at northwestify.co.uk. Uh, we also have a question form on there. We're going to start taking questions and then posing them to uh, our guests. So if you have a question and you'd like to get it answered by uh, a senior leader, tech person, um, or just myself and Zach, drop those questions on there and we'll get to them. So thank you very much, everyone. And thank you, Dan. Thank you.